So this takes you back a long way, huh? It does. Tim it Hortons. does. Tim Hortons takes me back all the way to freezing cold hockey arenas and <laughs> skating lessons and, and things with, with uh, my, my parents and friends. Born in Canada? You lived the, f the first few years of your life there? B born in Khobar, actually. Born in Saudi Arabia. Born in Saudi Arabia, in Khobar. Give us the story. I was born in the uh, Fuad Abdullah Hospital. Excuse me, let me repeat that. So I was actually born in the Abdullah Fuad Hospital in uh, Saudi Arabia. So my uh, my parents had been living there for uh, over a decade by, by the time I was born. I am the, the youngest of four children uh, and um, quite a bit younger, actually. So my, my next youngest is eight years uh, older than me. So I was a pleasant surprise, you could say, to the parents. Uh, and the... Um, I think that the, the memories that I have are, are quite limited in, in, in reality. You know, I, I, I was three years old when I left uh, to Canada, but there are so many stories that I heard growing up and so many fond memories that my uh, the parents and, and my siblings would always refer to about their time in Saudi Arabia. And one, one thing that moved with us that wasn't part of the family, but was actually part of the family was our car. Uh, so in, uh, we had a, a 1980 or 1981 metallic silver uh, Mercedes S-Class that my parents moved with them to Canada. Uh, I know exactly which one you Yeah, and it had a kind of a blue velourish interior. Be beautiful car uh, and very unique to, I think, to, to, to Toronto at the time as well. Okay, so I'm going to Google it and I'm not going to write 1980. I'm going to write 500 Mercedes S-E-L Mercedes S-E-L and I'm telling you, it's going to come up. Give it to me, Sami. It's one of those, right? It's one of those. It was the exact, I think it was actually that one right there. The light blue one? The light blue one, yep. With, with a blue interior as well. And it wasn't leather, it was... Uh, wow. It was... Put yeah. it up on the screen right now. Those things lasted for... I, I they swear they're tanks. God, I see them on the road today in Saudi. Yeah. Yeah. They're tanks. They don't build them like they used to. Absolutely no. not. This thing was metal and made with with love. And, and, and the production line wasn't churning out thousands of cars a day it was maybe tens of cars a yeah, day you know exactly. some lump went into it oh, most definitely and 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 on that car we had a sticker that said sunset beach okay and i think that was the uh, access pass to our to our beach club membership in khabar back in the day and that was where i think uh, a lot of formative memories were made for my siblings and my parents uh, and uh, the stories i hear about life uh, in 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 the 70s and early 80s uh, around Khobar and, and Dammam were incredible, right? I think it was a, a, a real community. Everybody kind of was going to the same community centers and schools and um, seemed to be a, a very pleasant place to be living and a very dynamic place, tons of growth, tons of opportunity, uh, a lot of parallels to, you know, I think the, the, the last few years again and, and, and as well as, the, you know, I think the, the reason why I moved uh, in the uh, mid-2000s to the UAE is this, this, this resurgence and this boom in, in the Gulf, um, which is really attracting people from all over the world to come here, set up shop, and, and really try to you know, follow some kind of dream and, and build something around it. September 11th did a lot of that migration or re-migrating back to where you came from. I mean, I was one of them. I was in school in Boston and I couldn't get my visa renewed. Yeah. And I thought it was the end of the world. My cousins thought it was the end of the world. Then I had some friends and cousins in Dubai said, actually, there's a new world here. Mm -hmm. And I went and I honestly never looked back. Most definitely. And, and I think uh, growing up in, in Toronto, I moved when I, when I was four years old, um, we, were, we were very exposed to multiculturalism in, in its entirety. So it, it, from 
from a very young age, we were in the households of people of every ethnic background. And, and usually, you know, um, their parents were migrants uh, or, or, you know, recently immigrated or uh, if that maximum two generations before that. So one thing that Canada always referred to itself as, let's say with the, with the cup here, is a cultural mosaic um, where the U.S. was always a melting pot. And I think the model that I see here and I see followed here is a lot more of a mosaic, which is which is bring your culture with you, um, and it's very accepting. And that that structure um, really um, reduces the instances of the stereotype or the reason why you would be uncomfortable or unable to go back to the U.S. after Boston. Right? It's it's getting a deeper understanding of of a culture really creates, uh, I think, an, an, an ecosystem in its entirety, which goes beyond the stereotypes. Uh, and, and, and that's what I really have been enjoying, kind of, I, I was very fortunate, and I think it wasn't my choice, but I was, it was the decisions of my parents, and I think, you know, the, the, the culture that we entered going into Canada, and then uh, moving to the UAE, and, and, and seeing now across, I think, Saudi and, 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 and the broader region as well, the ability for, for, for cultures to come in bring some of the best that they have, some of the other things that they bring with them as well, and, and really, you know, influence and integrate, um, but not have to all melt together, but live in a very cohesive fashion uh, and, and, and really be able to kind of build and grow from that point onwards is, is a very, it, it, it's, it's a wonderful model. And it's one that, that you know, I'm, I'm very happy to see my kids growing up in right now as well. Yeah. Multiculturalism is something that I very much appreciated there because you, I have I have friends from countries who I would have never have been able to say that I have friends in that country because of Dubai. It, um, a global village, uh, I see why they called that part of town global village. Dubai kind of is like a global village because when, when I lived there, Sami, the Habayas in Saudi were very much mandatory, culturally. It was mandatory, you had to, you know, you just don't go out not wearing one. And then I'm like walking by and I'd look at a Costa or a restaurant, Paul Cafe, and, and there'd be a lady in, in, in hot shorts, I think is what they call it, and then another one who's Munakaba next to her. But neither one cares or is aware that you, know, you are wearing what you're wearing. Lakum dinakum waliyadin is one of my favorite eyes in the Quran. You, know, this is a, you, you do you, I do me, and, and when it's all said and done, you know, we will have to answer to someone. Not now, but eventually. You put in time from 07, started a company, co-founded a company, uh, and, and, and today, you know, you see what's happening in the UAE, you see what's happening in Saudi, and you kind of, you know, beat a lot of people to it who are now turning their attention to the region 15 years ago when you came. Um, you looking back at that, is that one of, like, is, is, do you look at that move in a very proud way? Is it one of your proudest moves in taking a risk, getting out of your comfort zone, starting from scratch per se? A lot of risk comes with that. How do you reflect on that? moment in your life? Um, well, you know, Mo, I think if we look at that time, so 2007, I was, I was very fortunate uh, in, in the way that I ended up landing in, into the UAE. Um, I had my, my, my siblings had all somehow moved to uh, either Dubai or Abu Dhabi before me. So I had the chance to visit multiple times from 1998 all the way until 2007 when I moved. Um, and that was really kind of the period of when I was in university and then uh, starting my first company, which was uh, an oil and gas company that was uh, based in Toronto. 
but had assets in the region, uh, investors and business development opportunities in the region as well, which we centered out of Dubai at the time. Um, during those travels, I would just get more and more excited about the opportunity that was in, in, in front of me in, in terms of what was going on uh, in, in the UAE at the time. Uh, Dubai was going through a, a massive boom in terms of you know real estate development, general development. Abu Dhabi had had set up multiple development companies and had had set up massive initiatives to to focus on economic diversification. Um, and these plans were not just you know, I think uh, plans on paper. They seemed very real. There was there was uh, boots on the ground. There was a sense of excitement. And as somebody who who, who inherently was entrepreneurial in nature. Um, it, I felt crazy not to be uh, in, in the middle of it at, at that point in time. So, uh, in in two thousand and uh, in two thousand six, I was traveling to Abu Dhabi uh, to, uh, to 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 visit um, one of the, uh, the the funds based in Abu Dhabi that had oil and gas interests because we wanted to see if there was any assets we could acquire from them uh, for our company, which was uh, publicly listed at the time. So we were we thought there was an arbitrage to. To buy in on, Toronto, public listed in Toronto, public listed in Toronto. So maybe I can go backwards yes, uh, a little bit. So in in two thousand four, uh, I um, co-founded a company called Candax Energy, uh, and Candax was really a, a marriage of the Canadian capital markets and oil and gas opportunities in uh, the Middle East and North Africa, starting off with Tunisia. Uh, so we um, through uh, our network we were able to access. Uh, and, and gas field in Tunisia, which was um, pretty much an orphaned asset. It belonged to a construction company. They had no plans on developing it, but the Canadian capital markets were extremely active at that point in time. And there was the beginnings of a boom in terms of oil and gas investment. This was 2004. Oil was sitting at around $30 a barrel um, before it kind of spiked up to 240, 140, exactly, uh, in, in a very short period of time. So we were able to um, utilize uh, kind of initially private investment from uh, the Canadian capital markets to build a company and acquire this gas license, really the ability to drill. Um, and over that period of time, this was, I was 24 years old at this point after university. I, um, I was really focused on the business development side of things. We had two other co-founders that were much senior to me. Uh, and I learned a tremendous amount from them and then ultimately the, the team that we hired around them as well. And um, I was just very fortunate because this was probably the quickest MBA or deep dive into entrepreneurship or any energy entrepreneurship you could possibly get because we were looking at, you know, acquiring assets and doing such things. And I was a very, I was very quiet at the time, just listening and trying to understand what was going on and trying not to make a fool of myself in terms of saying the wrong thing or, 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 um, uh, representing the wrong thing in, in the meetings. And we were able to, to acquire these assets and then raise significant capital. And within two years, we kind of went from idea to an IPO. Uh, unheard of-ish. In, in, yeah, I, generally it is unheard of, but Toronto is a very unique place and it's a very entrepreneurial market with a history of, of entrepreneurship and resources. So since, you know, for, for over 100 years, for over 150 years, there's been a very large mining economy uh, that, that has come out of Ontario and really kind of um, led by the Toronto Stock Exchange as well. And in 1999, um, there was something called the Toronto Venture Exchange, which was launched. And that's effectively a public venture market 
uh, with a real focus on uh, historically with a real focus on mining and oil and gas. Uh, and in 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 a strange way, there are a lot of parallels between mining and oil and gas and uh, and venture. Uh, and and the reason I say that is you need to take a portfolio approach as an investor, um, and eventually you're going to hit that unicorn or gold mine. And, 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 they're, and they're quite similar. The chances of hitting one, um, the reasons why you invest, whether that's you know the, the people who are looking at it, the, whether it's the geologists or the founders, um, and, and ultimately, uh, you shouldn't just be betting on one. You need to take a, a real portfolio. So I, I, I started, and this, this whole business started out of a, a, a venture builder, and an incubator focused on building a number of these companies, looking at different assets, uh, mostly focused on Ontario. But when I joined the the company, we branched out to the Middle East, um, and it was just a really really exciting space and time because it was tremendous growth. It was a um, it was a period of, uh, of 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 real excitement in the world of energy. I think oil and gas became a very hot topic. If you recall the super spike conversations and oil kind of hit $200 and, and such things. And we were uh, in a very small way, right in the middle of it, uh, as a uh, small Canadian company with assets in, in Tunisia. Um, we ended up acquiring around 2,000 barrels a day of production uh, in Tunisia as well. 2,000 per day? 2,000 barrels a day of production. And then uh, we, we, we raised- it's a, big, it's a big number though. It's a big number, yeah. And, and we raised significant capital to start drilling for more. Um, and over that period of time, I was involved both on the capital raising side as well as the business development side, to um, to try to, uh, to to try to find further opportunities to, to to roll into this company. And in 2006, I was visiting Abu Dhabi, uh, and I was uh, visiting uh, um, the offices of of Mubadla's energy and utilities team. It was still a relatively nascent company as well, and. Um, I was asking about potential assets that they might have that we could, uh, that, that, that they were too small for them or something they've seen that was too small for them that we could take a look at. And uh, somehow the conversation pivoted into, um, we don't have any assets like that, but we'd love to introduce you to our, um, to our, to our new initiative, which is an uh, initiative that was yet unnamed, but the, focus, the goal was to make Abu Dhabi a global center in renewable energy. Uh, and... The idea was to invest tremendous capital into the domestic uh, sustainability ecosystem, but beyond that, also in, in, in invest in uh, global companies and projects to to, to really make uh, the, the the UAE and another that be an epicenter of it. And I thought that just sounded like an incredibly exciting idea. And my roommate uh, and co-founder, afterwards, uh, uh, and, and and very good friend. Uh, was a solar engineer. So I'm, it was funny, we were living in a house in an apartment in Toronto, and uh, one of us was an oil and gas guy, the other was a solar engineer. And I, I went back to, to him, and it was it was actually January in 2007, so it was freezing cold uh, in Toronto. And I said, listen, I, I, I got off the plane, or I got on the plane in Abu Dhabi, and it was 25 degrees. I landed in Toronto, it was minus 25 degrees. And I thought, this is probably the last winter I, <laughs> I want to do here right now. Talk about polarization. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I spoke to, 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 my, to my good friend and roommate and said, would you be interested in starting a an, an, an solar company in Abu Dhabi? And within four months, we had built up a business model, raised capital. I had exited my position from the oil and gas company. Um, we had brought on another co-founder. 
And we moved in July 2007 uh, to Abu Dhabi, um, where the weather was actually much worse than Toronto at the time. So I probably picked the wrong time to move. And um, and we started Environmina, uh, which was the first solar company in the region. Uh, and uh, that was really a, a very pivotal, I think, time in terms of that shift and really presenting the, the opportunity was presented and I had multiple visits to, to the region and it takes one of these large announcements or strategies that come from the leadership and that, you know, I think come from government programs, large development programs to attract the, the, the human capital at the time to, 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 to really build something around that. And we're seeing, you know, that was a, a, a rare example in terms of sustainability. Fast forward today, there are so many incredible programs, initiatives, and investments coming out of Saudi Arabia, coming out of the UAE, coming out of the broader region, which uh, if we look at the size and scale of what we need to do to, 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 to be able to build kind of sustainable economies moving forward, it's going to take you know tremendous entrepreneurship, it's going to take tons of capital, and it's gonna take a real, I'd say, coordinated effort amongst policymakers, amongst uh, companies, entrepreneurs, and most importantly, I think the grassroots individuals to to be able to implement that change, and it's it's incredibly exciting. So, just let me get this straight. Question: It took only a year and a half or two years in the job that you were at before you co-founded Environmina yes. for you to realize that this is something that you want to like a space that you want to enter on your own with the two years experience you had in the mining industry and no previous experience before then no so two years the question is took two years for you to say this is something that i want to do to the point where i'm going to invest my own money in a company and found it based on the two years of experience that i got in the business Yes, but mm -hmm. I think it was a very skewed decision. Uh, and the reason it was skewed is I thought that you start a company and within two years you've IPO'd and you're, you're on, on the stock exchange. So our, our business model and our strategy was one which had a very short kind of period of from investment to monetization. Okay. Uh, and again, that was 2004 to 2006 oil and gas, um, a market that was just booming like, like no other. Um, we founded Environmina in 2007, um, shortly after we had a global financial crisis. And uh, shortly after that, we had, in, uh, with, with the Arab Spring, a lot of volatility with a lot of the markets that we were looking at in the region. So what was a three-year business plan and strategy ended up being an incredible 11-year journey. Uh, and uh, you know, there's absolutely no regret in terms of how long it took. And it was an incredible lesson in terms of um, persistence and sometimes you know, massive challenges would, would be in front of us. And, and we, um, I was very fortunate to have a, a co-founding team with me that were, was able to kind of ride that journey because it would be very lonely to go through that I at that age. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you were spoiled with the first experience uh, IPOing in two years. No, it, it reminds me of a rookie winning a championship on his first year. Exactly. And, th and, that's, th and that, that's, that's a perfect example. Yeah. I would um, say Celtics in 2008, but you'd rather talk about the Toronto Raptors. Uh, we, only, we only have <laughs> one in 2019. So, <laughs> and, 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 and what a championship that was. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, you got into it thinking that it must be this easy going forward. And then, you know, challenges 
Arab Spring, you say um, global financial, like you couldn't have witnessed a more bumpy road yeah. between, and they were like two years apart. Most definitely. Uh, and, and we were raising capital in the UK. Uh, in this was in 2008. Um, we were doing a, a round of funding and we were meeting with a fund and this is exactly when Lehman was, was collapsing. And I remember trying to pitch our company. It's a solar, solar company in Abu Dhabi. I'm sitting there giving my pitch deck. And I, I'm, I'm seeing this guy literally trying to hold back the tears from it in his eyes because of what was going on. And it was a very, very challenging time to, to, to be raising capital. But I think it was also very valuable because I think that, that polar, polarity of, of how easy it could be versus how hard it can be, we take it for granted. And I think it, every, during every cycle, um, everybody feels like the, the smartest person in the world when it's on the way up and everything seems very easy. And on the way down, the panic kicks in. So the ability to to, to levelize and realize that cycles do happen and, and history may not repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes, um, following the, that pattern of, of, of actual cycles is, is extremely, I think, helpful as somebody who's now been a few in, in a few of them as, as an entrepreneur. But do you feel that you have benefited from that? Do you feel like you've earned battle stripes from keeping the ship afloat during historical turmoil, uh, I think so, and I think from my from from my vantage point, it seems like historical. Um, you know, I think historical challenges, but maybe from the broader context of history, it's a pretty small challenge, it's right? Small. I think it was it was a small bump. Uh, you know, COVID was a big bump for a lot of people, and I think that was a, more than just a, a bump in terms of business and, and thing. It was it was a life bump, uh, and one which I think a lot of us. The, we, we benefited from those scars. We got to take a step back and reassess and, 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 and maybe um, prioritize things that, that, that were not necessarily focused on before uh, the, the great COVID. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, panic selling is a real thing. And I don't mean selling when the market is red. I mean across so many different verticals. Keeping a calm and collected head is probably one of the best things you can learn with age. It's crazy what you can do when keeping uh, a cool head. When we spoke on the phone, you mentioned how you have found comfort, and I took note of it here, found comfort with the fear of failure, which was just a beautiful, liberating statement or comment that I uh, I, I took a note of, and, and I think it's a, a way to live life. Um, is there a circumstance that you can highlight or pinpoint in, in how you found comfort in the fear of failure? My, 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 my investors, peers, co-founders, board, everyone who kind of is around you, um, will always, you know, give you advice and nuances and most advice will come, uh, with the pretense of, um, you know, making sure it works, make sure it works out and everything. And if you build just around protecting and around protection, uh, of, of failure, then you will move too slowly to succeed in a lot of markets. Um, and 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 to, to be able to make an impact, so the need to go fast and the need to to build things really increases your likelihood of failure. Uh, and and I'm of the viewpoint. I think uh, you know, there there you you definitely need co-founders and, and and those around you to to equalize this viewpoint. Is we need to just keep doing, keep challenging, and if you are failing, have small failures quickly, right? And I, we call them micro pivots, effectively. Um, and, and learn very quickly from these failures and keep going. Because if you're afraid of testing something out, um, whether that's a product into the market 
or uh, you know that's an idea or that's hiring a new member of the team all of those different things will will stop you from moving forward and i think um we need to flow very quickly uh as as young companies uh in in the region with you know potential that is massive in front of us whether that's in water or energy or whatever the case may be and you you do sometimes have to just jump into these opportunities uh head first studied right you have to hopefully know how to dive at this point but you you you, you if you have that fear of of, of jumping into the opportunities then they'll never happen um so that fear of failure is something that i'm i'm oddly comfortable with and the learnings that you get from those failures allow you to become as you touched on you get the worst cards you're more resilient and you'll you'll do it better the next time around because yeah you you know you kind of want to i like what you said about getting your failures out there quickly and early um how, what's your relationship like with the word experimenting and trying new things we were we were experimenting before actually distributing um, with the flavor and texture of our water. We have a water sommelier on our advisory team and we have a mineral filter. Uh, so the, the taste of the water and the texture of the water is something that's critical. And we were doing so much testing in terms of the quality in the middle of the road. And one thing is we all come with our biases. So I love this kind of water. You love that kind of water, whatever the case may be. Um, we really ended up going with that middle of the road uh, the middle of the road uh, flavor and texture that was the most popular, and it's interesting because there's that contact. There's that. There's the same kind of going back to the mean, and I do feel like the mean is where you want to be for a lot of these um, for, for for a lot of these things that are for for mass distributions, mass consumption. Is you you do want to be able to um, attract and impact as many people as once, and experimentation allows you to understand what that mean is very often as well. So. Water and the, the the use of plastic is clearly a problem that it's a global problem. Yes, some countries and regions do it better than others. Um, could we be doing more to accelerate our recycling efforts, which clearly is on the list of uh, is is like well, sustainability and recycling is is high on the list of. At least I can speak on behalf of projects in Saudi and governmental projects. Sustainability is on there. Um, where does recycling and sustainability, how does that all play in? I mean, I want to hear it from the expert that you are. So, you know, I think um, you said that, could we be doing it better as a region? I think globally, we need to be doing it better. Um, around 525 billion uh, plastic bottles are used just for the water sector globally. Um, so 525 billion single-use plastic bottles, only around... 10% of these, um, probably a little less than that, are being recycled annually. Uh, that's a massive problem. Uh, if we, we zoom into to Saudi, it's estimated last year around 15 billion single-use plastic bottles were used for the water industry. Um, and around 5% of those were recycled. Um, so do we have a massive issue in front of us right now when it comes to single-use plastic waste? The answer is yes. Um, you know, it's around 14.5 billion uh, plastic single-use bottles were put into landfills uh, last year. Um, the good news, and, and it is very good news, is uh, over the past couple of years, the, the Saudi Green Initiative has set a target, which I'm very confident they're going to be able to achieve, to go from 5% to 15% of uh, all plastics being recycled. And that is a huge, huge outcome. We're talking billions of bottles left out of landfills and, and recycled. Um, we're seeing you know, similar programs throughout the region as well. And really the 
the nascent and early days of recycling programs at scale. Um, that's great, and I think that's that's very important. But what we want to see and what we want to focus on is reducing the amount that needs to go into the recycling yeah. bin, anyways. I have a no plastic policy in my house, which is which is brilliant, and and you can do it. And I think no plastic and and sustainability used to come at a cost, and that cost was a lower quality product um, or uh, a higher economic cost um, or a true lack of convenience across the board. Today, you can be sustainable with a better product at a lower price um, with more convenience. And, and I think you know, those three pillars are, are really going to be what accelerates uh, the transition. And what I love about a lot of the environmental programs, sustainability programs, is there are numbers and targets that are set by governments kind of from the top down. But ultimately, the economic drivers and the grassroots purposes and reasons are, are what actually accelerate that change. We've seen it with EVs, we've seen it with renewable energy, and I expect we're going to see it with water as well. On the subject of water, uh, water purification at least, people in the States feel more comfortable drinking out, at least like my family members, they feel more comfortable drinking out of the tap there, but not in the Arab world. What do we need to do to feel comfortable to drink out of the tap? So uh, maybe I'll start off with drinking out of the tap in the US. Okay. I wouldn't be that comfortable without any purification. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. So, uh, and, and the reason is um, recent studies uh, have, have indicated that there is um, 200 million people in the U.S. have something called forever chemicals, PFAs, uh, found in their, in, in their tap water. And that leads to, um, you know, there, there are uh, a number of, of, of studies that shown that that creates a uh, reduction in the impact of vaccinations. Um, there are, it, it has a carcinogenic impact. It impacts kidney and liver functions. So there are a number of reasons why PFAs are quite dangerous. This, uh, this is all from drinking out of the tap. This is, this is found in 200 million American. Oh, and, and what happened was the EPA had a certain threshold and then realized for it to have a negative impact on your health, that threshold had to be dropped by a few orders of magnitude. Um, and when that threshold was dropped suddenly, and, and instead of 30 million people having PFAs in their water, 200 million people had PFAs in their water. So purification of tap water is something that that's quite critical the municipal level and every at the municipal level and everything water is being treated and purified but the challenge is once you get to that kind of last mile so pipes in your building older buildings throughout the states canada globally um that last mile is something which is very hard to control for so we call it point of use filtration filtering filtering exactly when you're going to drink the water is that incredibly important step to ensure that uh, what you're drinking is actually um, not just clean enough, but um, but but very very clean, purified, refreshed, and fresh, freshly filtered. It's, it's an interesting thing, but we've learned a lot about you know um, when you filter the water as well, because transportation, whether that be in a plastic container or that be in a uh, or, or, or that be coming out of the tap. Um, is is quite important to, to 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 take as a factor in terms of the quality of the water. I've seen devices that go on the end of the tap that that appears to purify, yes. yeah. or jugs that just hang around there that that you pour tap water. I've definitely seen my mom do this. Uh, that she'd pour it into this filter and then drink from the Brita. Being filtered. Yeah, the yeah. Brita filter. The Brita, Brita. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the Brita gets rid of that first layer of 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 uh, purification. Uh, it works. 
to an extent, you guys have kind of the chlorine and, and a few of the other things, but there's so much in there, right? Um, now you wouldn't feel comfortable drinking out of it. I personally no. Uh, I, I think as as I've learned a lot more and have taken a deep dive, and um, to the extent that I've 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 gained a bit of a domain expertise in what's in tap water and then what needs to come out of tap water, I believe we need to to to, to do a process called RO reverse osmosis in the water, which filters it and basically strips the water of everything down to um, very very low micron level. And what we do is we remineralize the water to add flavor and texture again and to to bring it back to life. Mm-hmm. I was in the States five years ago, and I remember taking off from LAX and the number of solar panels I saw on the roofs were was, was quite staggering. I'm like, these guys are really taking full advantage of the sun. Um, sun hits Saudi, you know, 365 days a year, and even on a cloudy day, you are able to. Is there a reason why the region hasn't adopted solar for end use? I'm talking panels on top of your house. Uh, where are we with the adoption of that? So it, the it varies from country to country in the region, and um, I probably can can take a deep dive into both Saudi and into into the UAE, um, where we've had experience building some of these rooftop uh, plants as well in my previous company. The use case for putting solar on a roof is actually perfect here because our difference between um, what we call peak energy demand, which is in the middle of the day when the air conditioning is blasting and probably people are, people are in the factory or warehouse or office, whatever the case may be, um, is substantially higher than the base, which is just kind of the average uh, amount of energy. And solar produces electricity exactly during that peak time. Um, so what you're doing is you're displacing the highest cost part of, of uh, the power production uh, curve. Now, what would be required to allow for these programs and I think Dubai was one of the first ones to do it uh, uh, with, with something called the Shems Dubai program, is something called net metering. So when I produce this electricity, I'm allowed to put it back into the grid. Um, only in the last couple of years has that been uh, mandated, allowed here as well. And so the rollout is yet to happen. Um, but when it does, it does happen at scale. And we did see that in Dubai, where uh, uh, gigawatts of solar was put in kind of on, on ground mounted and and on on top of buildings, and I think the potential here in in, in Saudi is incredible, mm. and the target has been set. Um, so today we're probably around one percent of, of of energy coming from renewable resources. The target is to be at around fifty percent by twenty thirty, which is uh, a, a massive it's 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 a massive opportunity, but it is highly achievable. The reason it's achievable is the technology exists, um, the policies now exist, and now it's just a function of deployment. So um, there are single projects that are currently under development, have been awarded in Saudi that are larger than the entire existing kind of solar installed capacity. So we're going to see, I'd say, exponential change over the next decade in terms of how much solar is rolled out, both kind of the massive plants in, in, in the desert and are producing at, at the city level or at the municipal level, as well as the distributed solar projects on rooftops as well. Um, and the reason I'm so confident in this is not just the policies, but the economics, um, the cost of production of, of solar. So I'll just give a, a bit of a story. And we, we built the first solar power plant in the region in 2009. Is that Masdar? For Masdar, exactly. Okay. And, and Are you impressed that I'm... 
Yes, I'm very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> they marketed it so well. It was yeah. obviously on all, all the mainstream news channels. Like they exactly. really pushed it. And what we loved about the ad that we often saw was um, front and center was was a solar power plant that we built as well, which was the, the first solar power plant in the region. Uh, it was a 10 megawatt plant, which <clears throat> by today's standard is not massive. But if we look at uh, 2009, it was in the top 20 largest plants ever built. Um, and this was our first project as, as, a, as a young startup kind of co-founded by three guys who had just moved from Canada. So it was a massive undertaking for us as well. Um, at the time, the cost of the 10 megawatt plant was uh, $50 million. One five? Oh, five zero. Five zero. Fifty, yeah, $50 million. Goodness. Today, that same 10 megawatt plant will cost you somewhere around $5 million. So 10x cheaper. Yeah. Exactly. And so the decline in the cost of the technology has just really allowed for it to not just be at parity, but well below the cost of gas, oil, and the sources that are currently being used to power the grid in, in Saudi today. Um, so we're so confident that the economic case, along with the policy, along with the initiatives, the, the goal of Ndarga to be net zero by 2060, um, all of these things are are, are clearly aligned, uh, and will require, you know, I think the the massive deployment and the expected deployment over the coming decade as well. You took me exactly into my next point that I that I noted on this. Maybe I should have done some more research on my own to find out what net zero means, but I'd much rather hear it from a professional. So, f for example, uh, if you produce electricity using solar panel, that's net zero because you're not producing any carbon from from the electricity and, and that's where saudi green initiative comes in 10 billion trees by 2030 exactly to offset okay, yes okay so it's a balance of that okay. so so you you could sequester carbon uh and that's things like planting trees or literally there's new technologies that are, are actually pulling carbon and greenhouse gases out of the um uh, out of the sky or you know at, at, at the point of production um and then you uh we, we inherently have to produce some carbon mm day-to-day -day life um, as long as we're still eating meat and we're still uh, you know I think even driving cars because it does require energy input to make the batteries to make the steel um, and, and to do all the things that are required so net zero is ultimately that yes you are sequestering and and reducing you're reducing your carbon footprint you're sequestering and you're ultimately not adding carbon to the ecosystem balancing the two um, have you looked into the Saudi Green Initiative? It's it's really incredible. It, it, 10 billion trees to be planted in Saudi from now until the target of 2030. Um, just a quick read of this. Saudi Green Initiative, SGI, is an ambitious national initiative that is focused on combating climate change, improve, improving quality. Why can't I read it? Saudi Green Initiative, <laughs> SGI, is an ambitious national initiative that is focused on combating climate change, improving quality of life, and protecting the environment for future generations. Launched in 21 by MBS, SGI supports Saudi Arabia's ambition to reach a net zero by 2060. Um, 77 initiatives under this, 186 billion and help uh, in, in, in funding. Um, 10 billion trees, uh, in the coming decades to equal rehabilitation. And you know what? We had a shortage of green spaces in the country. Uh, so it hit so many different touch points. Uh, with King Salman Park in Riyadh, it is massive. 
I think is bigger than Hyde. I think I saw a stat. I'll check it, Hyde and Times Square put together. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm seeing green spaces pop up in Jeddah, but we don't have a central park, which um, which this heads on. Planting 100 billion trees over the next 10 years in Saudi, you will start to see more green spaces, which is something we really need. Most definitely. And I think sustainably planting those green spaces is critical. And and that's what I I... I really appreciate about the depths of, of, of the initiative because it touches not just on planting more trees, but how you plant those trees, what kind of trees they are, the impact it has in terms of carbon sequestering and taking carbon out of the air, and then how it fits into a larger ecosystem, marine conservation, uh, recycling, what we touched on before. So the tripling of, of recycling between today and 2030 are all part of the same initiative and they all do go hand in hand. Um, and you see that sustainability is something which is often catalyzed from the top down, but is implemented from the bottom up. And um, that's what you know really excites me in 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 what we're doing today, and 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 what we see in terms of the general consumer behavior. So you mentioned that you've stopped using plastic in your house. What was the reason why you stopped using plastic? I wanted to do my part for the country's efforts, the city's efforts, the global efforts to contribute to recycling. I wanted to do my part. Because, you know, I, 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 what really bothers me so much in life is when people say, you know, what difference will I make? Yeah. I hate that. Because if everyone said, what difference will I make, be it positive or negative, that could be the, the, the difference between global warming, uh, uh, life expectancy it's here here it's such an either negative or a very positive remark you couldn't be more right and i think one thing that we've done is um i, I have maybe i can give a bit a bit of a background on wisewell because uh we wisewell is a company that what after I, in 2000 in 2017 my solar company got acquired so uh environmina was was acquired by a uk-based pension fund um i had one year of of uh remaining as, as part of the company and after that, I decided to uh, to start my own platform. After 11 years of operating and tons of war stories of doing the first solar project in seven countries across the region and cutting your teeth in many in, in you know many exciting markets and, and and some interesting environments, I decided I didn't really want to operate anymore. I, I, my my goal was to invest and really help kind of fuel and seed the future. Uh, the future cohort of sustainable entrepreneurs in the region trying to 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 take on some large problems. Um, and I was very fortunate. I, I, I got connected and invested and was a first investor in um, the first and very fast growing um, compost company in 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 the UAE. super exciting co-founders who are are doing amazing things, an incredible energy management company. And I was watching the entrepreneurs do their business. I started getting jealous. Uh, and this, uh, you know, kind of fast forward to uh, lockdown and COVID in 2020. Um, I thought to myself, I'd, I'd like to uh, build something that has uh, a real impact at the grassroots level. So when we used to build the solar power plants, and some of them were uh, absolutely enormous in scale, it would take years to build, we turned them on. And nobody realized that they were getting 4% of their electricity from solar energy while char charging their iPhone or watching TV. So the actual, um, the, the consumer 
impact was was quite limited, although the carbon impact and, and I think the, the sustainability impact was quite high. Um, so I thought to myself, where in kind of the world today of, of what we do uh, on, on a daily basis, can we actually engage with, with the end user um, constantly and at the same time make a massive impact? And, and the one that just jumped off the page was water. Um, we should be drinking water eight times a day. Um, we, we are, uh, today the way we drink and deliver water is completely broken, right? So if, if you look at, uh, the global bottled water sector, it's a $300 billion market growing at 6% a year. So it's going to be close to $400 billion by the end of the decade. So plastic consumption is not slowing down mm -hmm. by any means. It's, it's growing. It's, it's growing at a very rapid pace. Is that not a disaster? It is. It's an absolute disaster. So last year, 140 million barrels of oil equivalent was used just to produce plastic bottles for the bottled water industry. That's just, it's an enormous number. And if we actually look at it, um, somebody is filling a 300 milliliter container that's made out of petrochemicals in Fiji, putting it on a boat, bringing it to all parts of the world, it gets consumed, and then 95% of the time, it just gets thrown out into landfill. So that whole process is just, it's nonsense from a sustainability perspective. It's nonsense from an economic perspective. It's far too expensive for us to be drinking 300 ml at, at that cost. And then last but not least, um, and this is a more recent discovery, it has some pretty detrimental impacts in terms of health. Uh, a study was just released last week, so it's quite timely, um, and it was one of the number one trending um, uh, pieces of news in, in the U.S. Um, we had always assumed that water had water bottles had microplastics in them, uh, and microplastics basically, uh, the way they were quantified was in one liter of, of uh, in a one liter bottle of water, we would have around ten thousand microplastics. Now, with these microplastics. Quite a bit of research has been done that the the, the compound that's found in the, the bottles itself is not very harmful in terms of human consumption. Limited data, but it's not it's not evidently dangerous. Um, using a new technology, uh, a, a study was reported last week that there's now something called nanoplastics that are found. So instead of having ten thousand particles of plastic, there's actually two hundred and forty thousand particles of plastic in one one liter single-use container. Great. And th this is a bit scary because it can actually, it can cross the blood-brain barrier. Uh, testing on mice in labs shows an accumulation of plastic uh, and the carcinogenic impacts, the health impacts, we're not fully aware of just yet, but it's only been around 20 to 30 years that there's been global adoption of bottled water. Bottled water was a novelty. Uh, in the kind of generations before us. Like in the 60s? Yeah, it was not a... How did they drink their water? Uh, it was usually point of use. It was not uh, It was, It was. was not the plastic delivery. It wasn't go to the supermarket and, and boxes of 24 as you put it in the... No, no, it wasn't. And you had you had the gallons to some extent, but it was also just a lot of those actually um, purification point of use and, and, and other things as well, but it was not nearly as prevalent. In Is the, the upside down gallon dispenser just <clears throat> as bad as your 500 ml bottle use? Yes, in terms of plastics, from a health perspective, you would assume it's it's quite similar. They're using the same material, the PET plastic. Uh, 
very often those are at least reused. So um, if, if they are reused, then then you have a, a lower um, environmental impact on, on the usage of them. But what was kind of staggering was the study came out in terms of health over, over the last uh, over the last couple of weeks as well. And now we have this kind of perfect storm of you have a product which filtered water will be better for your health. We don't have to worry about the 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 the, the plastics and microplastics and nanoplastics. Much better in terms of sustainability and at a much lower cost. So what we touched on before, where being green and being clean was was a compromise. Um, I don't think it necessarily has to be. And this is what we really designed Wisewell uh, to be around. So we built a um, water purification company, a technology company that was really trying to completely change the way people viewed purification. It's a pretty boring topic if you're going to just talk about it uh, and on, on the basic level. Something goes under your sink or um, you, you look at the top five companies globally in terms of water purification they only represent 25% of the global market. And that's because it's just fragmented, it's, it's localized. Um, our view is that more could have built, built around it, and there's a lot of pain points. Um, one is really building a, a brand and aesthetic around, uh, around the water purifier. It used to be hid under your sink or in the pantry, so we wanted to make it sexy. So we we took inspirations from the Dysons of the world. So I, I remember before Dyson made the fan, I'd be pretty embarrassed to have like an old school fan sitting in, in my living room or whatever, right? It feels a bit, uh, it, it felt it felt a bit old school to, to, to have one of those. But as soon as Dyson built their fan, things changed, right? And, and, I, and, and I, I felt, uh, you know, that the water cooler, um, which was often a... Uh, a meeting point at, at an office, you know, that water cooler conversation, whatever it is, it needed to, to, to not be hidden in the pantry anymore. So we designed something that just looked very slick and sexy. Um, and it wasn't just about the external aesthetic design, but it was about what's on the inside. So we have a number of sensors that are testing your water quality from your tap, what happens after the filtration, exactly what's going on with your filters. Um, and then we aggregate all of our users. As you mentioned, what change can I make individually your change is actually pretty, pretty impactful. The average household uh, in, 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 in Saudi probably would be reducing around 8,000 single-use plastic bottle containers a year in terms of your usage on a 500 ml basis. 8,000. Yeah, on a 500, which is the average use of, of, a, of a case. So if, if you aggregate that on multiple households, it's massive. Um, now, we, we, we delivered our first units around a year ago in Dubai, where, which was our first market. And... In that year, we've displaced 3 million single-use plastic bottles. Um, and we're just, it's compounding. So it took us nine months to, to, to displace the first million. And then it took us four to get to two. And we're just constant. We're just, we're, we're very quickly. It's compounding. It, it's, it's compounding. And um, when you say displaced, I'm sorry, when you say displaced, do you mean no longer brought into the market because of your solution? Exactly. So instead of somebody using a, drinking a, Plastic bottle, they're using they're used that. Yeah, they're so, using that. So you took it out of existence. Exactly. We took it out of existence. Yeah. That's, that's our goal. So we, the water bottle companies are your enemy. Uh, they probably see you as the enemy. They're our peers. They're, they're much larger than we are. We're still a, a minnow in, in, in the ocean, I think, of, of, of water. But um, we see them long term. And it's funny because you, you, you touched on something which was often said to us when we started a solar company in Abu Dhabi in 2007. You guys have... Isn't, doesn't that seem like a threat? Doesn't it seem, a, why, why would 
why would the Gulf want to deploy solar energy? You know, that's that's uh, that's against oil and gas. I actually think it's the contrary. I think it's complementary. It's it's a natural progression. Um, and I would envision if I am a very large water company and I'm kind of looking at the sustainability case, the economic case, the health case with what's going on today, um, you want to divert yourself and, 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 and pivot into the point of use purification as time goes on. So we view them as, as hopefully long-term peers and partners versus versus enemies. And that's the same thing that we, you know, I think we, we saw with, with sustainability and renewable energy. For those trying to figure out what the substitute for a plastic is in layman's terms, how would you explain the way of going about it? Like, okay, yeah, I see, I, I hear what you guys are saying. Plastic is something that we shouldn't be using anymore. Uh, explain to me the alternative. Okay, so the, the most common alternative, and I see it in hotels now who are trying to, to be more sustainable, is they'll put a glass bottle in. Yes. Um, the glass bottle does actually alleviate some of the threats from the microplastics or all of the threats from the microplastics, but um, it's around 140% more carbon intensive to produce glass and transport glass bottles than it is plastic. So it's not better. Weight, and it's 40% more expensive. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's more carbon intensive and at a higher cost. So yes, it does tick a box in terms of I'm not drinking from a plastic bottle. I feel better about myself, but the truth is it's not gonna solve the problem. Um, the way we solve for it is, is to actually, you know, what comes out of our tap is 99% there. It's that last mile of refining the water and, and it's the technology exists today, but unfortunately it was in general, it's not presented in a way that is clear to the end user. Um, and so what we've done is we, we have a, and we have an app connected to this and it tells you exactly what's going on with your water, how much you've consumed, how much all users have consumed and, and it allows people to, to, to gain the comfort and take the plunge of going from, uh, I think of plastic consumers and, and the behavioral shift of drinking from drinking tap water is, is a very challenging one for, for many people. Right. Um, and we, what we want to do is, is really lighten those pain points and make everybody very comfortable that what you're drinking is actually not just equal to it's better than the alternative. So it's an invisible solution filtration system that you won't have to see. It's it's what's coming out of your taps is clean and good to drink. So it's actually very. What we've done is we've you fill it from the tap, but it's very visible. So we actually we we we, we had a very design led uh, approach. So our our unit and I'm, maybe I could um, show it to you somewhere. But basically, it's it's a standalone water cooler that just looks um, you know very uh, design oriented. Uh, it you know comes in very it, it comes with a very cool design aesthetic and it's it's a what's that so when someone walks in they'll say what's that what does it do and try to create the conversation as per the Dyson plan exactly yeah. as per the Dyson plan and that's and that's really the our goal is that again sustainability does not have to be boring and costly it could be sexy right? and that's that's really what we're trying to what we're trying to push is it is and I think Tesla has been a very solid example of that right with 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 their vehicles. Um, there are a number of ways to make, um, being clean also be cool, right? And I think that's, that's the key. No one thought that the electric cars would be that fun, sexy, cool, fast. And they, they turned the industry on its head in a way that I don't think the other automakers thought that 
people will jump on that bandwagon. So where you got Lucid as well now, which Incredible. I think looks even better than the Tesla. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all about the adoption, right? You yes. know, are you willing to sell your combustion engine for a battery-powered car, EV? That's that's the question. Some people are just so happy. So they're, they're just used to you know their ways. It was an adjustment for us in the beginning when we said no more plastic bottles in our house. Mm-hmm. And then with time, you would be surprised what you can get used to. 100%. And did it feel like a compromise? Maybe the first week was just, first two weeks was a bit, uh, where's the plastic button? No. You know mm-hmm. what? You've you got to fill up the, the, the tin from the dispenser. But it just felt good that we were doing our parts. Yes. And uh, and, and it's crazy because, you know, you, you have any bin in the corner of a room and you'd be surprised how many water bottles can just fill it up in no time. Yeah. Uh, and just to eradicate that uh, really was a was a feel-good moment. Most definitely. And and it's uh again that's that the grassroots impact, right? And and those little behavioral changes go a very long way. What makes me very optimistic is you and I are sitting here, both forty something. Uh you know, we're talking about how I'm just forty. You're just forty. I'm, I'm a little bit older than forty. Uh, <laughs> the 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 difference is the next generation, it's just it's ingrained in them, right? Yeah. I think that that sustainability is second nature. Um, and part of me feels like in the next decade or so, somebody walking around with a single-use plastic container is going to look a bit like holding a cigarette. Yeah, yeah. Um, I hope so. From from a health perspective, from a you know secondhand pollution, yeah. smoke perspective, all of that is is clearly happening. And there's there's all these different policy, um, you know, I would say uh, sustainability and all these different pressures that are that are making it happen. And as long as the technology catches up and the user is not compromising, then it's a great change to, to see. I see it being taboo. Yeah. I, I see it being like, really, are you still drinking out of that? Yeah. You know, and hopefully not in 10 years, hopefully in less than that. Yeah. Yeah. Sustainability. Um, I listened to an interview yesterday. Head of Red Sea Global, he was on Abdullah Mudafir's show, which is the number one journalist in Saudi. Um, and he was talking about with the Red Sea Project, there is 90 islands, they're only developing 30, a third of them. And Abdullah said, why? He said, because we need to preserve the marine life. Um, marine life has reached the islands before us and we're building on the islands that marine life has not settled on, be it corals, be, be it turtles, being so forth. Because I've heard it said, actually it was the Crown Prince who said this, he's like, if we don't protect the marine life, there'll be nothing to come and see. It's a it's a beautiful, huge lagoon um, between Umluj and Al-Wajh, which is as, tur- like it is, it's not Maldivian, it's more Caribbean, beautiful. where you have that turquoise and the sand. And, you, and if you take off in the day from Jeddah, you head north. And I remember seeing, I remember like looking out the window 15, 20 years ago, looking at these islands and I was like, why aren't, we taking advantage of this. This is gorgeous. And here we are where the master plan is 30 hotels. Mm-hmm. Three of them are open today. Yes. And and the number one thing on the top of the list is sustainability. Uh, and I don't imagine you'll see any plastic or glass bottles there. It'll be interesting. I'll be interested to know how they consume their water, though. I need to go there. Yeah, I've, I've been... I've seen I've seen images and it looks absolutely stunning. I mean, I think it's it, as, as you mentioned that Caribbean aesthetic of of the sea is is beautiful and the architecture of the resorts is so integrated to the nature that it's it's beautiful and 
Red Sea Global as one of the companies or, or entities that has set a net zero target, and theirs is by 2030. Um, so it's 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 a lot right more ambitious. It's around the corner, which means they're doing it today to be there by 2030. You're, you're pretty close today already. And um, I don't have you know in-depth knowledge of, of, of what they're doing, but the hospitality sector generally has been a, a, a leader in terms of uh, the change and, and reducing the use of single-use plastics and the growth of the hospitality sector here and in areas which are so focused on nature um, inherently would lead to some innovative solutions. And uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's something that we are constantly looking at too. How do we partner with uh, the hospitality sector? How do we really try to create a, 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 I remember the first time a lot of people engaged with an espresso machine was in, was, was in their uh, hotel room. I don't know if you remember that, that was how kind of, the, and this is, it's, it's a similar thing really that first time you actually use a proper water filtration device now I have to go get the old fashioned company and it can be in the hotel room. And I think that's, that's a, it's a really interesting kind of entry point for people to engage with something that's a sustainable behavior um, in, in, in a very comfortable setting and, and hopefully bring it back home with you. You started Incubate. Yes. Can you tell us uh, what that experience was like? Sure. So I, I started Incubate uh, shortly after selling my, my solar company. Um, and Incubate was just a kind of, I'd say, a, a, a soft landing into what do I want to do next. Um, and the idea was of Incubate was to invest in funds and businesses at the crossroads of sustainability and technology. Um, and as I touched on before, we're very fortunate to have invested in some really exciting companies and funds that uh, were making an impact and change, uh, mostly around the UAE. Um, and during that period, I was a very um, supportive and hands-on investor, leveraging the experience that, that I had gained over the uh, uh, decade or so in, in, in the solar company um, and trying to provide those learnings as well as capital into, um, into these new businesses. And as I, as I touched on, that experience was one which was exhilarating to watch entrepreneurs, but also um, got me itchy. I, I wanted to be. I, I wanted to do it. You know, the, the, in, in the board meetings, I was sometimes a bit jealous, which is uh, a strange place to be. Um, and the experience I've had at Incubate as as an investor has been one which um, I've I've really appreciated because watching the journey and and being able to, I had some 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 wonderful mentors, and and I think I I, I gained a lot of insights from from people through my journey over the years. And it's, it, it, it really is, um, I would say, a blessing to be kind of sitting in the seat now and, and, and providing insights and lessons learned uh, to the next generation of, of, of I'd say, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed entrepreneurs who are very excited and just you know, want to hit the ground sprinting in terms of, in terms of their opportunities. Um, and my experience with Incubate is one which I, I wear two hats. I wear that of somebody who heads Incubate, but I also am I'm the founder of Wisewell. Uh, and that was a company that we incubated out of Incubate, uh, which, is, which is quite funny. <laughs> not, not, not intentional, but that's, 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 how, um, that's how it was launched. And the, my ability to switch on and off from, I guess, you know, investor to, uh, to, to operator is um, sometimes a challenging skill set because you need to many times be giving 100% of your time, effort, and focus onto kind of the venture at hand. But at the same time, we do have our 
um, you know, our, our other entrepreneurs and other um, peers that we've invested in, we've supported to date. And that dynamic is one which initially seemed challenging, but as the years have gone on, I'm actually finding that it's incredibly complimentary. Um, it is a massive opportunity here in the region when it comes to in, in investing and in, in taking on sustainability as a sector, but it's also a relatively small network. Uh, and there is just so many, I really do believe in the network effect. And so the touch points of our portfolio companies, and some of them are already working with hotels, for example, right? So we actually can leverage the insights and the experience and the relationships of our portfolio companies to try to bring our product forward, right? And, and so there's this interesting network effect that Incubate does. And what we always promote, and we've, we've done this for, uh, for the last few years, is um, we'll let anyone come to just kind of sit and set up shop, use our offices, and just exchange ideas because that cross-pollination of, of entrepreneurs and ideas and investment opportunities um, all sitting in the same room together has a very unique value that you can't really quantify, but you can only feel when you're in the room. And so, you know, we, we urge anyone to come come over uh, to, to our offices in the IFC and just um, and, and let us know what they're up to. Is it... Uh, is incubate sector agnostic to sustainability and oil and gas, or is it from? So we don't really look much at oil and gas. We are sustainability focused. Um, we are sector agnostic. So we'll look at consumer, we'll look at energy generation, we'll look at waste. Um, one thing that I've, I've more recently done though, and I, I think as I've become more actively involved and become more and more excited on the opportunities as well as well is um, we used to want to take a much broader portfolio and invest in you know, dozens of companies. Now we'd like to have a smaller set of companies that we're more actively kind of engaged with and holding hands and, and trying to grow together. Um, and I think that's just a function of, of personal time and resources as well. If I was to ask you, looking back at your favorite failures, one that has taught you the biggest lesson, is there one that you can pinpoint? My, I think my, my favorite failure uh, as, um, as, as the founder of Environment at the time with, with my co-founders as well was we were uh, a very kind of young and, and, and dynamic set of, of, of entrepreneurs uh, and, and co-founders. And we really believed um, you know, that we could take on any challenge that was presented in front of us. Um, and... At one point, we were presented with an opportunity which was a bit of a change in our business plan that required additional resources. Um, basically, it took us from some a company that was just building solar power plants to, to owning them as well. Um, and we landed ourselves an opportunity to own a, a sizable solar power plant. And um, the guidance of some of our peers and, and we people who had given us fantastic advice throughout the years was, oh, you know, you guys are potentially biting off more than you could chew and you, you shouldn't take it on. Um, and so we, we let that opportunity expire. Uh, and, and although through, through all three of us as co-founders, we unanimously wanted to, to, to pursue this opportunity. We unanimously wanted to do it, but we're like, you know, we just, we're going to take the ad advice of kind of our, our board, our peers and everyone, and we're just going to let this expire. Um, the value of that opportunity that we let go of was actually larger than the company we had built at the time. Now we grew to be able to fit into that, but it was 
a massive thing that we walked away from. And for whatever reason, we just didn't question or push hard enough. So um, we just, because we didn't know enough about that small pivot and change in our business model, we, we, we didn't really, um, we didn't question the, the advice. And we were quite busy with other things. And that's really one of the, the reasons why we didn't question, because we we're pretty annoying and persistent generally, but we just didn't question, although we'd always bring it up. We're like, we should take a further look at developing this specific project that was in Jordan at the time. And had we not let it expire, you know, I think we could have been orders of magnitude larger as an organization. The acquisition of the plant. The, the, the ownership, in, instead of just ownership. building the plant, owning the plant the as plant. well, uh, which is just a slightly different, we, we go from builder to developer really at, at that point. And we did that way later on down the road, but had we done it as early as we wanted to, it would have been a, 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 a seismic shift in terms of our business. And just so I can understand, you that you would you would have then put yourself in a position to be an energy provider. Yes, exactly. Okay. So instead of just a builder and operator, we were in, a, and we did become one uh, six years later. Okay. But being involved in the early days in those projects would have been a monumental shift for us. But for whatever reason, we just did not, you know, poke and prod. So now, when you know. Um, we're told by kind of peers, investors, stakeholders, um, uh, no, you shouldn't do it. That constant question, why not? Uh, what would be the impact? What's the downside? How do we um, make sure that we're, if, if we believe it as, as founders, if I believe it as a founder, um, why not do it, right? I think the question is, we're the ones who are by far most in the weeds, seeing everything from a daily basis. Um, and that's something that I, when I invest in a company, I really give the entrepreneur the benefit of the doubt. I will question their assumptions, but it's something that I've brought with me as an investor now is giving the flexibility and my my vantage point from a PowerPoint presentation or a Excel spreadsheet is is very different than the person who's living and breathing that business on a daily basis. And we took that for granted in, in the early days, right? You overvalue sometimes the- Which is rare. Thing. Yeah. You know, typically people who are more senior than those who are working on something, albeit day-to-day, -day, think they know more about something yeah. than they do. And it's very humble of you. And uh, uh, at the same time, very rare to to give to give the person who is working on it day-to-day -day the benefit of the doubt that they might know a thing or two more about it than you do. And when I say one or two, I actually, that's like euphemism for a lot more. <laughs> Um, in your, throughout your career, have you seen like a common denominator that stops people from, from achieving their goals? Uh, yeah, I think one of the biggest things that, that that's helped me achieve my goals, um, is who I'm surrounded by. And I think you're the company that you, you keep. And, and, and I think the energy of, of, of the company that you keep is, is, absolutely critical in terms of being able to accomplish your goals, right? And that's, um, I think that's one, providing the the, the moral support and, and just the general um, uplifting to be able to, to, to go on and take the plunge of, of getting into a new idea. Um, that's providing the necessary comfort and soft landing if it doesn't work, right? And, um, you know, one thing um, that I think was was instilled in my upbringing by my parents was uh, go out and try it, you know, do it. And they're extremely supportive and, and enthusiastic. Um, now, uh, with, with, with my wife and, and even with our family and we do it with our kids, anytime I come up with, with, you know, a thought or an idea, um, that degree of support is 
you know, when I when I when I tell Aya, my wife, oh, I'm I'm thinking about doing this or we want to do this, she's like, oh, go for it. And you know, it's it's a very enthusiastic, not oh, what if this doesn't work? Or and the the actual um, the support that you get and the I guess I'm I'm, I'm trying to think of the, of the right word here, but ultimately the energy, the energy, the, the, the safety net, yeah. right? Yeah. And and if it doesn't work, everything's going to be all right. And there have been times where things haven't worked, right? Whether it's uh, an investment or a specific project or opportunity, but knowing that that safety net of of, of those who surrender are, are, are there is great. And it's not just a safety net, but it's also the ability to to to, to bounce the ideas off of your network. Um, so you know, I'm again very fortunate to have a group of friends and peers um, who all come from different backgrounds and experiences who could provide insight on um, on, on on the different opportunities and. That really gives you the confidence, and it goes almost back to the multiculturalism and, and di- diversity of, of of backgrounds. If you ask a large number of people from from different backgrounds, but you have a deep respect for, and they have deep insights and and, and real honesty with you, um, it really helps validate and test and experiment very quickly. Uh, and those experiments happen as a small conversation with your co-founder, your family member, your wife. Uh, your investors and those little experiments are what get you towards your goal and 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 um, and I think that's a, a constant evolution and, and just having that support system is critical and and ultimately if you don't have that uh, and you, and you have naysayers around you um, or for whatever reason you can't find the right people to talk to to give you the confidence to to jump into a new idea um, makes it very challenging it's a very daunting task to you know, change a career. Uh, or to uh, try to start something new, or or take on a new project, and uh, conversations are necessary, and conversations happen with your social set around you, and, and that's 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 critical in terms of achieving a goal. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why we should be getting happier with age, because you, through the process of elimination, will know what doesn't work for you, yes. and what does work for you. And I really do believe that we are the average of the five people closest to us. Now, people think it's the five human beings closest to you. Actually, I disagree with that. If you, it's, you need to factor into that the content that you consume. So um, I listen to a lot of Tim Ferriss. I listen to a lot of uh, Lex Huberman. You know, like there isn't an episode that Tim would release that I wouldn't watch in the next two or three days for many reasons yeah. to become a better listener to pick up on words that I would have never come across and to learn more about subjects that I know nothing about. Um, so that plays into the content you consume, plays into the you are the close, you are the average of the five closest people to you. The happiest or what would you say the best advice is that you've received that you are glad that you did not listen to? The best reset, best advice I've received that I did not listen to mm. was probably slow down, um, right? And I think uh, on many occasions, you know, you're you're taking on so many things, and as as an individual, uh, curiosity is abundant, and and you, uh, I generally uh, can can get quite I not bore easily, but I think. Um, I can become uncomfortable if something becomes stagnant in terms of uh, whether it's in something in business or life or health or whatever it is. I think there's just constant movement is something that 
um, keeps me very comfortable. And um, on many occasions, it's like, you know, just stop and really try to assess everything. And then you'll figure it out by stopping. And, and, and to be honest, for me, movement is, is, is how I figure things out. Um, so constantly trying to, to learn, to pick things up, uh, to try little things, micro experimentation, that's all quite critical in terms of, uh, in terms of things. So slow down works for many, but, and it's a great piece of advice, but I, for whatever reason, so far, I haven't felt that. It's, uh, I would agree with you well. because, because the people around you are not, are not stopping. They're moving. Yeah. And if you stop, you're going backwards. Yeah. I think movement is, what's the old saying? Um, motion creates emotion. Yeah. Um, and if you are stagnant, you're, yeah, you're actually going backwards because people around you are chipping away. Yeah. Um, so I would absolutely agree with you on that. Five years from now, what is something that you really want to make uh, a reality? Five years from now. Yeah. What's your number one goal in life now for your next five years? So I think, I mean, there's many layers to, to that. So um, impact is, is, is what I want to do in five years. And I think as I've, you know, as I've aged, uh, I've realized that time is finite. And when you are um, spending time with family or friends or spending time working on something or spending time with your children, um, how you approach that time is, is absolutely critical. And being impactful uh, in, in what you're doing, and this could be in the sense of my hours spent, how much change will they make um, with my company, for example? Uh, should I spend five hours having a small internal meeting about little things, or should we go try to do something massive, right? And that, that's, that's one side of it. With my children, it's probably the one where I think is, is, is most interesting because I look back to my early conscious memories and my eldest son is five, so I think he's going to start getting into the conscious memory in, in, in the next few years. There are events. I remember when one time my father took me fishing or my, went on a road trip with my parents to Florida, and those memories actually stick in there, ingrained in you. So I want to start creating and catalyzing these memories, um, which I'm sure are hugely formative and, and um, are, are, are things that, you know, we only have a certain window to, to, to implement these things and, and you never get them, you know, you don't get that chance to do it again. So having positive impact and the time that I'm spending on all the different parts of my life and prioritizing is, is, is the goal. It's a challenge though. Like it's, I think it's, it's probably one of the biggest stresses for fathers today to distribute their time between work and spending time with their children. Yeah. If, if, I mean, how do you, I, I struggled a lot when I was in corporate and the podcast and the kids and all I wanted to do my dream, which alhamdulillah is reality today. I said the podcast and everything that goes into it is a job on its own. And three children is, requires a lot of time as well. I can't put a third thing on my plate and podcasts and kids and my day is full. Mm -hmm. uh, and just to be able to balance between the two is, uh, is tricky, you know, and, and Wow, if you can get that close to right as possible, um, it, it's a great feeling. Yeah, I understand. I, I don't, you know, my, my view is there's no such thing as right. And I think it's, a, it's, it's just, um, we, as you mentioned, we are probably most impacted by the five people and or, or you know, what we consume as, as the five as the most. And that's, as parents, um, we can have tremendous input in terms of our children's early development years, but really, 
who you end up sitting beside in class uh, or on a bus or on an airplane or wherever it may be can have a massive impact on who your friends are and who your friends are. And, and so really, I think, you know, for, for me, this goal is just being able to, to plant the seeds of these early memories and these early developmental um, points in, in, in time and in life that, that hopefully will, will be, you know, thought back when, when they look back in 30 years, 40 years. So I remember when I, you know, when we did this and look back on things with a smile, cause that's, that's really all it is. And when, when you fast forward decades up. It's funny when we're young, like, it's like, we want to be adults, you know, and, yeah. then, and then when you're an adult, you're like, where can I go just to get away from it all right now? Oh, you could be a kid again, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I often look at the kid's life and I'm qu qu quite envious. It's, yeah. It seems quite yeah. exciting. Yeah. You guys have it good. <laughs> Grass is never green. Yeah. Grass is greener where you water it is, is a saying I love. That's a great saying. Thanks, Sammy. Does that, uh, does that cover everything that we wanted to touch on? Um, you more optimistic or pessimistic looking into the future in the next 50 years? For mankind, energy consumption, I know, I know we just had COVID, which was like no one obviously saw that coming. But then you look back at, I just think when people think that there is just more, I'm going to swear for the first time, mm. shit happening in the world right now than ever before. I just think we're just more interconnected and news travels more. Because yeah. the Spanish flu in 1920 killed 50 million people. Yes. And COVID killed a lot less than that. Are we just, is fear mongering a real thing that makes the current times feel scarier, which means the future is going to be scarier? I'm 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 incredibly optimistic about technology's contribution to solving problems in okay. the future. So we are uh, on a planet with with limited resources historically, but we can actually now create resources on our planet, right? Uh, and that's you know being able to farm where you couldn't farm before, um, being able to produce electricity on a piece of desert, mm. right? Um, being able to uh, you know. To, 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 to preempt medicine in terms of, you know, uh, right now there's, there's incredible advancements in diagnostics and such things. So there's, there are so many different sectors that are being positively inputted, uh, or sorry, positively influenced by, by technology that my only fear, and I, and, I, and I don't think it's actually a fear, but my only question is, okay, well, if technology is doing all this for us, what do we do? Right. And, and I'm curious, right? I, I don't. You uh, want to say replace jobs, right? I, I, well, I don't think it'll replace a fear. No, I don't think it'll replace jobs. It'll create different jobs. But what are those jobs? And it's a question I wonder. I mean, what should our kids study today, right? Um, because really, understanding what uh, what a what what technology will be able to do in the next fifteen to twenty years when they enter the workforce um, is is a very challenging thing because of the pace of the change. Will opportunity exist? My gut feeling is absolutely. Um, what it looks like is is very very challenging to predict. In the thirteen years that I worked in a lubricant company, in our production line in 2010, there were thirty people in our factory. When I left in 2023, so thirteen years, the factory went from thirty to four or five people. Which yeah. told me that many jobs got replaced by tech. The factory did, but what happened to the rest of the organization? Where jobs created in, in other parts it as well? Grew. It, it grew. Yeah, it grew. Right. So I, you're, you're probably net positive. And I remember back in the day before the word processor, and I, I'm, I'm probably dating myself, but there were typing rooms. There were there were rooms of people that would type up documents. Um, the, the, the the removal of the typing room actually led to further job growth and job creation. Um, the same thing with 
uh, most technological you know, uh, innovations happen. Social so, media created jobs, created departments. Most, most definitely, most definitely. And it created a, a, a person who knew how to bake a good cookie could suddenly become a real business owner, right? And, and, and from home. From home. And, and there's, there's tremendous opportunity that was not when, when Instagram or when Facebook was first released, nobody thought that, that the use case was going to be the ability for you know, people with niche talents or the ability to bake a good cookie to become a big distributor or a Mr. Beast to be created, right? Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, it's a very, very interesting thing. And I think ultimately technology will create uncertainty, but will create a lot more solution than uncertainty in the long term. Yeah, convenience. Yeah. I mean, why didn't we, Sammy, why didn't we think of Uber in the 90s? I mean, the idea, I mean, the taxi just going back to like, I always had bad experiences in New York. In yeah. yellow <laughs> oh, me too. I just, I'm always getting into arguments and I'm a very peaceful guy. But these guys were just rude and they try to rip you off when they find out you're not a New Yorker. And now it's like, they don't know if you can't tell if, an, if you can't tell the difference between an Uber and a private driver. Like the experience is, is incredible and it's cashless. Yes. And there's a rating system. So you, they want to be treated, you, you're going to treat them well so that you can give them a good review and and later I found out that we as consumers of Uber, of Uber are rated ourselves. Yes. So how's your rating? Yeah. I, no, very good. Okay. Actually. Yeah. I'm like four or six. Thank you. <laughs> That's very good. Much. That's very good. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so like tech, tech yeah. where, where there is convenience, where, yeah, where, where you will find convenience, you will find the solutions, you will find the funding, you will find ease and tech really, if used for the right reasons, comes with more good than bad. Most definitely. And. I think that's and just to touch on that the the Uber example. Um, Uber was was meant to become the taxi killer, right? And uh, actually, what happened was people in their free time suddenly were able to have a new form of income. So there's a massive benefit in terms of the freelance worker and their ability to have a gig. And that was one of the catalysts of the gig economy, I would say. In addition to that, there has not been a reduction in demand of taxis. Actually, taxis are now available on the Uber app. Um, so it just broadened and can, made the entire process more convenient. So it does add benefit to that. And it all actually stems from the invention of the iPhone right? and the development of the iPhone. So without the iPhone, there is no, we wouldn't have had the Uber. Right? Do it on an Ericsson. And ex exactly. Right. And I think that's why we couldn't do it in the 90s. Uh, we could just play Snake. And, and I think <laughs> if, we, if we fast forward to, again, today and, and what you had touched on with energy is this is another input that's going to create tremendous amount of convenience, right? And that's on the food systems, that is on uh, the water systems, that is on technology and artificial intelligence and processing power. This input, which which is energy, um, which we are blessed with an abundance of here in, in Saudi and in the broader region, really can be a massive differentiator for us in terms of how we, what we're inputting it into and what we get out of it. And there's so many programs ahead of us and, and there's just a young population that's all kind of uh, been holding back and is now sprinting right across. That is 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 fantastic, and I'm 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 very optimistic about that kind of marriage of energy, technology, and entrepreneurship to 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 see you know the 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 potential and and the change over the next twenty years. I think it was Rogan has said back in the hunter gatherer days, you used to walk twenty thousand steps for your meal. And then in the 80s and 90s, it was like 5,000 steps yeah. to your meal because you have to walk to the car, from the car to the mall, the mall to the restaurant. 
And we're just, maybe the only negative is that we're, we're walking less because things are being delivered to our doorstep. Exactly. But now we count our steps. And now we count our steps. And I think <laughs> it's very, it's very yeah. important to be aware of how many steps you're taking because right now, with the convenience of life, you can easily fall into the trap of getting an abysmal 1,000 steps per day. Yeah. Anything under 15, I am unhappy. And in Saudi, it's much harder to get your steps in because we're not a very pedestrianized culture. In London, you know, 15K before noon, no problem. But um, but movement, it, it's it's crazy how important it is. And I just don't want tech to be the reason for less movement and the less health and the less life expectancy. And, you know, it's interesting because we wouldn't have, you would, the conversation of how many steps we take would have never existed without technology. Correct. Um, so, you know, until I had this watch on that was telling me how many I took was not even a, a concept. So... The fact that it's turned into a concept and we realize we have to take and we should be taking 10,000 steps or whatever your, your, your goal is, is a function of technology. So used for good and, and I think pushed in the right direction, it, it, it helps. The measurement, huh? What gets measured gets yeah. managed. Yeah. Thanks Thank for you. everything. Um, I really appreciated your time. Uh, I, I love how your MO or just mission in life is something that is so important for you know, the world that we're going to leave behind for our kids and our kids as kids. Sustainability, taking care of the planet. You always hear we have one, that's it, right? So whether it's uh, recycling, whether it's uh, net zero, whether it's sustainability, whether it's something as simple as changing the way you operate your household from plastic bottles to drinking out of a filtration system, I think we can all be doing more. And I'm on the top of that list that we can do more to, cl to create a cleaner uh, environment, a healthier earth, um, so I really salute you for, for, for the good that you are doing to our world. And um, I, I, I just enjoyed hearing what you had to say about it from the professional uh, that you are and the experiences that you've been through, pitfalls, uh, uh, successes, and, uh, and, and, and everything else that you have been through in your illustrious career. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mo. And thank you for providing you know, people a platform to, to speak on on what they're doing and the experiences because um, listening to your show and, and I think listening to the experience and the diversity of, of backgrounds that you bring to the table is is incredibly inspirational, right? And, and uh, thank you. Appreciate that. I'm still looking, uh, on the subject of diverse guests, I'm still looking for a bird watcher, professional one. So if anyone hits your desk. <laughs> I, I, I have a friend who's invested in a bird watching company. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> You're serious. Yeah. Digital bird watcher. Okay, it's a bird. It's a birdhouse with us, so we could probably get the founder of that birdhouse company. Yes, please, Definitely. please do. You just gave me an idea. I think at the end of every episode, I'm going to ask my guest to recommend someone from Industry X. I, I have not met them, so I can't vouch, but I, I I can definitely say it's a cool idea. Whatever you can do, yeah. send us an email, or we'll 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 reach out to them. Yeah. Done. Thanks a lot, Sam. Thank you. All the best. Oh, thank you. Cheers. Thank, thank you. you.